Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It's even worse than we thought, says Dick Pound, about his report today into the his and his committee's report into the doping in Russia, state-sponsored doping. I don't know if that's actually what it says in the report. It's about three hundred fifty pages long, but David Walsh put it to him. This is state-sponsored doping. You've got to, I mean, you've got to describe this as state-sponsored. And he said, "Yeah, that is. I mean, that's exactly what it is, David." Yeah. And David, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank I'll you look very for much. Uh, that, that's that's <laughs> what I was looking for there. But uh, yeah, by the way, this is Irish Times Second Campus Podcast. Owen Murphy and Ken. Hello there, Owen. Hey, uh, we're literally going through this as we speak. The press conference has just happened. Dick Pound answering. Dick Pound's quite an interesting communicator. We've interviewed him a few times over the years. Yeah. Uh, I've always quite enjoyed those he chats. Denied, he denied using drugs when we interviewed him. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I accused him of using drugs. Well, oh. he still denied it. He oh, denied yeah. being a user. What was the question? You said, you s- uh, would it oh, not it about, be it ben- about, beneficial? Yeah. No, no. We, we were, we were, we're talking about soft drugs. Pouring scorn on the idea that, for instance, drugs, yeah. you know, smoking weed would yeah. make you better at, for instance, gymnastics. And Dick Pan said, I don't know. I'm not a user. That's it, yeah. So. He had bigger fish to, fish to fry today. Yeah. And the fish he has fried, Ken, that fish is called Russia. Russian sturgeon, a mighty. Uh, yeah. So here are a few. The head- well, the, the biggest headline is that he recommends the Russian Athletics Federation be suspended from competition by the IWAF. Suspend. We're going back to the eighties here, where it's possible Russia will not by their own choice this time not be competing at an Olympic Games in 2016. The commission directly accused the Russian government of complicity in the widespread doping and cover cover ups in this massive report. Loads of details. One of the big, one of the standouts is that they identified intentional and malicious destruction of more than fourteen hundred samples by a Moscow laboratory official. So the head of the lab there was told by Wada, "Listen, we're on the way. We're going to be there by the weekend. Just make sure nothing happens to those samples." All right? He said, "Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, they'll 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 all be there. That should be fine." <laughs> Wada arrived at this just destroyed lab. Well, the lab was still there, but all the samples were gone. Samples? What samples? Yeah, they're like, what? Um, it's, it reminds me a little bit of what happened to the computers that all the World Cup uh, 2018 uh, data were on when, um, was it Michael Garcia, uh, the, the guy who yeah. was doing that report for FIFA, went to Russia to try and investigate what happened with there. And they, and they were like, 
Oh, those computers? Yeah, we actually leased those computers, and I think the company we leased them from have destroyed them. I know the <sighs> Gmail addresses are gone as well, so there's that. Yep. Uh, and and I guess they ones. didn't they didn't manage to find any evidence from all the destroyed computers. So, mm. you know, uh, mind you, I'm not. That. Yeah, I'm not surprised. If I was working at that lab, I'm not going to. I'll be honest with you. I don't know quite how high my morals would remain working in that job because apparently I might be. Let's just say if I was working in that lab as one of the officials, there might be a few police arriving from time to time just to give me some friendly advice. Secret police. Secret police, I should say. Yeah. So allegations. Uh, by the uh, by, the FSB, they're the secret police force which replaced the KGB in the early 90s. Apparently there was direct intimidation and interference by the Russian state at, at the water accredited lab in Moscow, including alleged direct threats to doping control officers as well as to their family members, yeah. it's claimed. So if it's kind of hard to operate in that environment. Yeah, and uh, the question that you would be asking if you were an up-and-coming Russian athlete is, and this is something we've actually spoken to Dervil work about on our TV show in the past, that... When, we're, when you're talking about countries where doping is endemic, instead of you having to opt into a doping program, the, the, the sense would be that you'd have to opt out of the doping program that is par for the course yeah. in that country. So what you're, if, if, if you're talking about uh, an athlete who you know, stole a medal off an Irish, another Irish athlete, say, you'd say, right, he or she, that athlete, that's the bad guy. When in reality, if you're dealing with the Russian athlete now, you have to ask the question, this idea of finger pointing at one particular person, say the, the, the bet noir of Irish athletics in one particular Olympics or whatever, that instead of that, what you're actually, if you're talking about an, a state-sponsored, uh, whatever the phrase you want to use, mm. state-sponsored doping, is... That it, it's so much bigger. It, 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 you zoom out and out and out, and all of a sudden you lose all perspective of just how big this thing is. That if you're a sports person and it's not limited to athletics, as Dick Pound said as well today, that if you're a Russian sports person, the idea of whether you should dope or shouldn't dope becomes so much more complicated than going on the internet and making a moral decision for yourself. It's actually right, do I want to make a career here? Do I want to make sure I'm not a troublemaker? Do I not want to get in trouble with the secret police in my country? <laughs> That's uh, that's an extraordinary thing to actually try and deal with as a as a. Well, I don't know if that's if that's necessarily what's implied here. I mean, what's implied is that the, the you know the state security services applied pressure to the anti doping yeah. agencies in order to get them to cover up positive tests. But if so, they're if they're if they're applying like you, pressure in that way, then would it not also stand to reason that you're an absolutely brilliant Russian athlete who's determined to 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 compete clean? Uh, and it suddenly becomes aware everyone around you is doping and you're the one person not doping. I would, I would suggest that you're making yourself a target. Maybe quite a bit ways. of pressure is going to I be don't believe in your, I don't believe in your existence where if you sound like a pretty implausible, uh, fictional, <laughs> fictional creation. So I think you need to go back to the drawing board with that. But we don't need to kill the lady character. here. There's, there's enough, there's enough in reality. Yeah, here. I mean, because yeah. the word that David Walsh used was different from the one that, Murph just used. I'm pretty sure that Murph, that that David Walsh's phrase was state supported doping. Oh, state supported, okay. So state sponsored doping to me would seem to suggest the state was actually paying yeah, for it, yeah, was yeah. funding it. You know, like, like as in East Germany, as as in um, West Germany, <laughs> as in as in various uh, cases throughout history. Whereas this would be state supported in the sense that the state is offering support, but only. In the sense of trying to suppress or help, trying to help suppress positives, which are 
you know, which arise from doping, which is privately undertaken, as opposed to centrally having a big sports factory, which is turning out doped athletes. You know, that's what it that's what it would seem to. Yeah, it's not a million miles off that, though, to be honest with you. And there's the, there are I think there are parallels with what you talked about there with the old East Germany. Uh, in fact, the people making a lot of the people making the money were the coaches. The mm. coaches were saying, listen, we'll give you you need to take drugs to compete. We'll sell you those drugs, so so they're making a bit of money on the side, and from then on, there's there's pressure from every level to get this done. So we, you know, we probably don't want to get, get bogged down too much in the semantics of exactly what you call this. Yeah. I think the most telling phrase actually was when Dick Pound said, "Everyone knew, mm. everyone knew," and he's including the sports minister in that. Now he's met the sports minister. He has explained to the sports minister, "You're not going to like what we found in this." Sports Minister has said... This is going to be even worse than the time when they discovered you had charged uh, 97 breakfasts to your room during the Vancouver Olympics. <laughs> it was. He, he, was, he was the 97 breakfast guy. The same guy. The same the, guy the, yeah, what's yeah. his name? Vitaly Mutko. Vitaly Mutko. So Mutko says, look, I know we're going to have to take a hit here, but we're committed to reform and a lot of what you're talking about, Mr. Pound, that's in the past anyway. So let's just, let's just all get along. I don't know at that stage if Mr. Mutko realised quite the extent of what was going to be revealed in the WADA report. I don't know if he realised that they were going to call for his country to be banned from athletics and banned from the Olympic Games. So that might change things somewhat. And listen, Mr. Mutko's got a lot in his plate because he's organising <laughs> the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Yeah, so, that's true. You know, things, something might have slipped through the net there. Pound said that he hopes that they're going to volunteer that now, that the, rather than fight this tooth and nail, that Russia will say, OK, we'll take the hit. Uh, sorry. We'll be suspended Pound. and we'll come back as soon uh. as possible. Like, well, I don't know if Pound actually believes that. That's what he says. Yeah, he well, I mean, if he, if that's what he hopes, I'll tell you what, he made a big boo-boo today in his press conference, Owen, uh, when he said, uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote because I don't want to misquote <clears throat> quote from Dick Pound. We don't think Russia is the only country with a doping problem, and we don't think that athletics is the only sport with a doping problem. Now, if that's what he thinks, I'm sorry, but I find it very difficult to understand why the Russians would step forward and say, okay, Dick Pound, we will voluntarily exile ourselves from athletics. We will be the only ones to do this uh, because... Actually, remind me why it is again, Dick, because according to you, we aren't the only country where this is going on. It's going on all over the place in lots of other sports. So can you please remind me again why it is that Russian athletics should step forward and voluntarily suspend itself from the Olympic Games? The, uh, the acting head of Rus Athletics, Vadim Zelechenok, I got there eventually, Mm -hmm. has told Orsport the following, any suspension should be discussed at the meeting of the IAAF in November. It should be proven that any violations were the fault of the Federation and not individual sports people. We should be given a chance to clear our names. That's the Federation, not those pesky individual sports people that have been bringing down the good name of Russian athletics. Yeah, yeah, you yeah got, I mean, because, you know... But come on, they should be banned There's this the story about, this, about these samples that went missing. Yeah. You know, who knows what happened to those samples, is what I'm saying. Now, if you've got a few bad apples out there among the athletes... 1,431. <laughs> <laughs> well, there could be more than one, more than one sample Look, from uh, athletes there. So. I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and defend Russia at that zone. God, no. I'm, I have no interest in doing that, let me assure you. However, uh, for, if, from a Russian point of view, if I was looking at this thinking, oh, this is funny, this is, this is quite nice, isn't it? The rest of the world is ganging up on us again. They're always saying bad things about Russia. 
It's always, oh, Russia this, Russia that. But then the guy himself says they aren't the only ones with that problem. Well, why are, they, why are they, we the only ones being investigated? Why are well, we the only ones being punished? Why are we the only ones expected to stay well, until we Well, we're not the only ones. Until we solve all the murders, we can't... Uh, we can't accuse anyone of murder. I'm not, and the reason that they're the ones being investigated, though, is because just of a, one journalist. It's funny how it's always Russia that's accused of but murder. Ca- but it's because, it's because of Hepelt, this German journalist who got a tip-off about this story in Russia, went, investigated it brilliantly, uh, was praised for that today. It, it was an act of war on athletics, declaration of war on athletics, according to uh, Seb Coe. Certainly one of the two documentaries that he did was de- was declared, he, was seen he, as a de- declaration he, 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 of war. Well, Seb was to step down now as well. Se- sorry, say it again. If well, Seb was to step down now as well as an apology for claiming that this man had declared war on athletics, when mm. in fact all he's trying to do is save athletics, mm. the German journalist. Yeah, you know. Well, it's funny because when I watched that documentary when it came out, it did seem like a, it did seem a little. Di- it was you. You can get a bit of fatigue with doping stories and with corruption stories in sport, and they're literally weekly at this stage. But I do remember watching that and thinking. Well, this is interesting. Yeah, it just seemed a little bit. And the big headline that came out of it was 99% of Russian athletes are doping, which was actually weird. It was one of those ones where that was a, an, a, sort of a standalone quote from one of the athletes who has been caught for doping and, and said it as almost a throwaway remark. And that was seized upon and I thought actually exploited a little bit too much because there were much more intelligent, well thought out points made in it. That ended up being the headline that 99% of athletes in Russia are on drugs. But you were watching that going, wow, there's a lot going on here. Everybody does seem to know about it. And it's just interesting that it's gone from that. They, they were prompted by the journalism, the investigative journalism done to go and investigate it. It's been investigated. And now what I've said, I've gone as far as saying they should be taken out of the sport, that this entire country should be taken out of the sport. It's a stunning piece of journalism, I think. And mm. uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, it's, it's probably, a, it shows that investigative reporting done to a high standard can still have some sort of an impact in sport. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it is. It's an amazing uh, success. I mean, in terms of the potential consequences, it's an enormous um, uh, journalistic uh, success, I guess. Uh, not not that the sole purpose of journalism is to tear things down and to, you know, boot countries into the wilderness. That's not what it's. That's not what it's about. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if he did expose the truth, even if it was only a partial truth, the truth as it applies to Russia, uh, I mean, I suppose. Um, you know, maybe he's working on stories about some other countries as well. Well, David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, has done some great investigative journalism himself and in this sport indeed. He broke the Alberto Salazar story at Nike, Nike Oregon, earlier on in the year and joins us now. I'm delighted to say to talk about your own reaction to this, David. Are you, I mean, we were all expecting some pretty big news and it was flagged over the weekend that this would be a game changer for sport. But Russia now being uh, recommended that they be suspended from athletics. Are you surprised by that by that recommendation? Uh, I'm not surprised, I have to say, even though that's the harshest punishment that can possibly be handed down, essentially. I had uh, I'd been hearing about some of what the findings were going to be, and I think it's one thing to have widespread doping among athletes, um, but, but some of the pivotal findings here are about um, you know, using non-certified labs to pre-screen testing before it went to anti-doping. Um, destroying samples that tested positive even after the fact so that the WADA Commission couldn't get a full view in their report. And they're feeling uh, by the people who are doing the report that the highest levels of Russian sport were aware of these sorts of practices. And so I think it's kind of a level of systemic corruption that we haven't really had sort of laid bare since maybe 
you know, the East German documents came out. So, so on that level, I think they, they feel like it's, it, it goes way above the athletes, and that's why it, they're, they're calling for sort of unprecedented penalty. Here. That, yeah, that detail you mentioned, David, about the 1,400 samples being destroyed, yeah, the, the drama of that, you know, even as Dick, Dick Pound was questioning that in the press conference afterwards, and he said, look, we were going to turn up, we turned up, uh, we'd asked them to keep all their samples, and we found out that a week before that, they'd actually destroyed 1,400 of them, which leads you to wonder, I mean, did the Russian, does it sound to you as though Russia thought they could just get away with this? If they keep destroying the evidence... They maybe thought, ah, look, nobody's really going to take us to task on this to the extent that they have. I think so. I mean, you th- think of how long they've been, you know, they've been obviously getting away with some of these things for. And it was, as we know, you know, most international sports federations have just gotten away with things because once the once the games start, everyone sort of forget. You know, it's like you think of FIFA. It's like once the soccer, once the football starts, it's like everything. Everybody forgets about everything else. So I think they probably thought they had a chance. They must have thought that whatever was going to be found was worse than. Than destroying destroying the test. Maybe they thought they wouldn't get caught. But I mean, in addition to that, they were using a non-accredited lab to look at athlete tests first, and, and then only send to the accredited lab the ones that tested negative. Right. And so, and and Dick Pound and his group said, "There's absolutely no way. We cannot believe that the highest levels of Russian sport wouldn't have known that they were pre-screening in this shady lab." You know. So it's a really elaborate lengths they went to to, yeah. to cover up tests at the start and then by destroying them when they didn't have them all covered up. It's pretty pretty frightening. Yeah, and the sports minister, Vitaly Mutko, who is, um, who, who Dick Pound said he, he can't imagine, w- wasn't aware of this. He said he must have been aware of this. He's also the same guy who's actually running the 2018 uh, World Cup and he's on the FIFA Executive Committee. Um, I wonder, though, how this is all going to sound in Russia, David. I mean, I, I noticed listening to the press conference, there weren't any questions from Russians there. Uh, it was uh, familiar voices from the media in, in Britain, uh, from Germany, uh, pushing this out. I can imagine that in Russia, people will say, well, Dick Pound has said we're not the only country with a doping problem, uh, you know, that this, that this problem extends beyond Russia, but this report only focuses on Russia. Why should we be the only ones to be punished? I, I think there'll be some of that. I mean, so he said it, it, it's, it goes beyond Russia and it goes beyond athletics, right? Unfortunately, we don't know how far beyond athletics because of the destroyed tests. Um, but, you know, in the past, when I've sort of followed smaller scale scandals in Russia, there definitely is some of that, you know, why us? It's sort of persecution of us based on old ideas and things like that. But, but, you know, the the whistleblowers came from Russia when we saw all, you know, when there've been reports about, I've seen a lot of biological passport data where people didn't test positive, but you can sort of see who looks shady. And Russia was certainly leading the world in that area too. And that was, I was getting to look at every country uh, that had tests there. So I think there are multiple reasons to believe that while there are problems in a lot of countries, it's not every one that, that Russia might be at the forefront in some ways. And I think, you know, I don't think it's too surprising that we're not seeing a lot of real, real hard questions from Russian journalists, because frankly, Russia hasn't had a very good track record of, of keeping journalists safe when they ask tough questions in real, in recent years. Yeah, and I mean, even the whistleblowers in this case decided that they better flee. I don't know if that's uh, being too dramatic about it. Decided to leave Russia before yeah. the ARD documentary came in. It's interesting that Dick Pound actually mentioned them, and he mentioned Seppelt, who made this documentary. He talked about the culture of investigative journalism and of whistleblowers coming out, and he feels that what I need to do more to allow this kind of thing to happen. I mean, I'm sure you've had this issue where you're talking to people who have who can tell you something, but you nearly have to convince them there is a point to all this. Actually, this journalism can make a bit of a difference. Absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, whether it's Renee Ann Shirley in Jamaica, who, who used to work for the anti-doping agency there and, and 
I, I met her while I was there reporting and ended up soliciting an article from her where she, for Sports Illustrated, where she talked about how they had stopped testing because their kits had expired, you know, or more recently writing about the Oregon Project. I mean, those, it, usually those articles, it's like the, the work is basically, you know, the year or however long it takes trying to set things up so that the, the people who talk will be damaged as little as possible, you know, and then that, that you can back up the things they say so that they'll have some impact. But I, I still think right now, the uh, the outcome in most cases is harder on the whistleblowers than it is on the people who are doing the things wrong. So I think that's another reason why it's important to have a really stiff penalty. Here. David, just lastly, I know you have to hop on a flight there, so we appreciate you chatting. How downbeat are you feeling about sport in general and the, the ethics of sport at this stage, given the FIFA story that's happened so recently, the IAAF, uh, this latest release by WADA? I mean, are you, are you pretty downbeat about things? I, you know, I am at the same time, I think, I think systems get the results that they're set up for. And I think most international sport federations are set up in a way where there's no accountability and that the spotlight turns away as soon as the games start. And so I think we're looking at a system that is set up to fail in this way. Um, and is, is practically, you know, like cycling was in a certain, uh, not too distant past, selecting for the people who are willing to cheat the most to get to the top of those federations. And then there's no accountability for them. So I'm, I'm downbeat about it, but I think there are ways. I, I don't think this is the way that it has to be. And so I, I, and I hope that this will be the start of some serious change. Yeah. All right. Listen, David, we appreciate you talking to us. Thanks a million. Thank you. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight somebody. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. All right, well, good to hear that David isn't completely out of faith in, you know, sport as a concept. Mm. We don't have to... Systems let us down, countries let us down, some sports in general let us down, but uh, we don't Listen, have to... Listen, the year isn't over yet, Owen. <laughs> yeah. um, I, w- I still give 2015 a chance of ending sport once and for all. Ken, you're reading through some more of the detail there? Yeah, like there's, uh, there's some... There's some specific detail in this very long uh, water report on the... Um, you know, kind of Russian sports system, or there's some information from, like, uh, you know, their the kind of anti-doping agents in Russia and what actually happened when they went to training camps and the sort of obstruction they really? run into. What, yeah. what kind of stuff? Well, you know, it does rather sound as though quite a few of the coaches were completely um, in on this. I mean, the whole, the, you know, they're basically guys arriving at, like, these training facilities and being told, oh, there's no one here. Oh, no, no, they're all just... Uh, off somewhere nobody's actually on site now you better you better go home and then like trying to ring them all or yeah. all the numbers turn out to be the coach's number or they tried to ring them they tried to ring a bunch of athletes and absolutely nobody answers their phone they're kind of like seems to us as though they might have been told not to answer their phone just by the way that actually nobody's answering nobody's picking up um you know it does sound quite uh uh you know quite a sophisticated I'm operation. surprised one of them doesn't just answer by accident, absentmindedly. 
Yeah. And then, oh uh, no, sorry, there. Uh, no, no, this is a wrong number. And My I, name is Mr. Burke. The scale of this story is, it's just different from other stories. This is flagged from last week when we realized that when Diak was, uh, oh, by the way, we should probably mention that the IAAF part of it, they weren't able to release that chapter about the specific allegations against the IAAF members because that's an ongoing criminal investigation. And similarly, the second big story over the that AORD, I think, were involved in, this is on the Sunday Times when they released the 11,000, uh, they, they got access to 11,000 blood samples over the years and proved that a certain amount of them were suspicious and weren't acted upon. Again, that's still being investigated. So there are parts to this that aren't even mentioned yet. And it's probably better. It's probably better to get these maybe on a weekly, mm. uh, weekly drip feed. But what we do have is this story where you've got it's it's not just somebody taking a bribe or it's not just somebody do it's it's all these factors together uh in the same story which uh, with a little bit of state support thrown yeah, in for leading, good measure leading from the individual athlete all the way up to the cabinet mm. of Russia's parliament yeah amazing all right time to find out what's in the Irish Times second captain's football podcast today that's yeah, they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But I don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it here. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you shawny man? Well, I'm going to. Chelsea still haven't sacked Jose Mourinho. Yeah, we're going to try and get to the bottom of why that is. And. Uh, yeah, we talked, about, talked a lot about Cristiano Ronaldo as well. I note that the tone has changed of the Ronaldo, of the Mourinho coverage, if we're now analysing why he hasn't been sacked yet. What is with these guys? <laughs> well, it is, I mean, it is a big um, change in, in policy for Chelsea. I mean, previously, any manager who had done as badly as Mourinho had done would have been sacked three games ago. So, something mm. seems to have changed in their thinking. Is it just that they're wowed by Mourinho's track record of success? Or are they trying to think about the manager, the role of the manager at their club in a different way now? Simon, the European Champions Cup begins with indecent haste this yes. this coming weekend. Are you excited? I'm going to force myself to be excited, I think. Yeah, it's just teams uh, playing in a competition that we might potentially win um, look good in relative to the World Cup. Why not? I think we're going to focus mostly on Lancer Day as well, largely because they're the team with the new... The new coaching team, but possibly going back to an old style of rugby, we want to talk about this idea with Jerry that teams have a defined tradition, a defined tradition of how they should be playing the game. Yeah, I mean, Matt O'Connor got the sack, I think, because of the way they played. If you were to take him purely on European results, he got to a European Cup semi-final last year, he gets the sack. That's an awfully high bar to set if that's bad enough to get rid of your coach. So I think it all comes down to style of play, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. I, I would argue it's more important in rugby than maybe any other sport just because the, the sport is so new in professional terms. Well, Jerry Thorny's dropped into us to talk about that, just that, Jerry. And I mean, this is a good chance, I guess, first of all, before we get to the style of play, for everyone to get the World Cup out of their system. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you people like you didn't remind me about it, I'd be fine with it. You know what I mean? I've moved on since, covered the semi finals and the finals. So, yeah, I mean, um, I suppose there's nothing better than the Champions Cup to kickstart a season. It's not the most exciting of weekends, I don't think, in terms of opening weekends from an Irish point of view, in terms of the matches and the lineup and so forth. But it's, um, it's a great competition. It will 
it will be the perfect pick-me-up, I think, because a little bit of a hangover around all of European rugby after what happened at the World Cup, because they were so clearly second-best, don't care what anybody says, you know, Scotland were close and all the rest of it, but in seven head-to-heads, the Northern Hemisphere came out losing on all seven occasions and then watched the Rugby Championship have a playoff in their own back garden, mm. in effect. So I think it's a, it's, there are, of course... The Champions Cup is in live by so many of the World Cup stars being around now for this tournament. So many of them, Dan Carter, Ma Nanu, um, Adam Ashley Cooper, Quaid Cooper, Will Ganya. There's so many that have actually decided to stay on here that I think, yeah, it's it's a very much an international festival of, of the tournament as well, isn't well, it? Yeah, and it used to be that we would look at the these we look at the tournament when it was the Heineken Cup and feel pretty good about the chances of at least one, sometimes two, maybe even three Irish provinces going into these tournaments. Has that been changed now by the last couple of years by the sort of shift in the balance and power of European rugby or should we still be looking at this tournament as a friend of Irish rugby? I don't think it's... It, those good days were never going to last forever. What was it? Five Heineken Cup wins in a seven-year period by Leinster and Munster. Um, and I think Irish rugby paid the price for that because I think that was the main cause really of English and French grievances about the tournament that Irish, Irish teams were winning it too much. And um, definitely it's become a tougher tournament for everybody to win, tougher tournament to qualify, uh, tougher to get into the knockout stages for and we've seen in the results in the last couple of years Leinster and Munster have made semi-finals in the last three years but no further and it is a tougher competition to win and there's so much money now with clubs like Toulon and Racing Metro the nouveau riche of the French, cl- uh, French club rugby as well as established powers like Clermont Auvergne that it is you look at a group like Ulster and they're in there with Oyonnax Saracens and Toulouse for example Saracens are winning the English Premiership they're, most ideas most people's idea of the best team in England in this tournament and Toulouse look rejuvenated under Hugo Mola um, Guinoves has moved on and I see they won 52-12 the weekend against Grenoble they're up to second in the table and Ulster have just managed their first away win of the season they have their struggles away from home and it's their misfortune that they go to Ajax first up. You know, when you get a debutante, we've seen this in the past, I think Montpellier had first time in Europe, a home game, they drew with Leinster. It's a big, big marquee fixture, your Heineken Cup, or European Cup debut for these French clubs who qualify for the very first time. You'd rather you'd be playing them in rounds five or six when they might be out of contention. They're just a different animal by then. But Ajax um, are, are an amazing club. They're in a valley off the Jura Mountains in the Rhône-Alpes region in eastern France. They're very, very difficult to beat at home. You often hear the chant around French grounds of EC, EC, say whoever it's ASM or it's whoever it actually originated in Oyonnax because they were so di- di- difficult place to find that away teams used to get lost going there <laughs> right. and then eventually when they turned up the home fans would greet them EC, EC, say Oyonnax and it's been adopted by all the other French clubs <laughs> but it actually good. originated in Oyonnax uh, I mean, One of the questions that we've touched on this uh, as we've started the programme but Leinster in particular mm-hmm. obviously have the new management team, homegrown management team they do seem to be going back to a more attacking style, uh, certainly mm-hmm. a little bit easier on the eye than what we saw in the Matt O'Connor era. Mm-hmm. And this has been the constant issue in the last few years with Leinster. It's, I don't know, I'm sure Leinster fans would probably accept a little bit of compromise on the style of play if they were going to be winning the tournament. But do you think it is important for Leinster to sort of refine the identity that they, that they previously had? Or do you even agree with any of this idea that there is such a thing as uh, a style of play that a team needs to be identified with? Well, Leinster are a very good, interesting case history in all of this, and you can see why the debate is, is happening. I mean, when Michael Checker first came in, they had that fantastic win away to Toulouse, playing what everybody regarded very much as Leinster rugby, their own equivalent of the try from the end of the earth, which Philippe Contepomi started from his own line, finished by Dennis Hickey in the corner. And they won away to Toulouse, playing breathtaking Leinster rugby. 
they then got hammered in semi-finals by Munster and Mike Brewer became a much more influential figure in the Leinster coaching ticket and then did David Knox and they tailored their game accordingly and became a very good wet weather team and a winter team and if you're going to play through the winter months you have to be a good wet weather team as well That's, but you have to be an all, an all occasions team too and I think there is something to be said with an identity a way of playing in a traditional club and it is part of Leinster's remit that they play with a certain degree of flair and that the winners see the ball and they try and score tries and they, they, they are true to their origins in that sense and I I think if you look at what happened in the last year, it, it went a long way to costing Matt O'Connor his job. So therefore, it does matter, you know. And in the same way, I think Munster are expected to have traditional virtues there. They can always add to them. I'm a great believer that tradition is a good thing provided it doesn't prevent progress. You can't be a hostage to tradition either. But if you go down to Thoman Park and Munster get a line-out mall, line-out five yards from your line, it's like feeding time at the zoo. You know, you expect the crowd to become very animated. You expect Munster to convert that territorial position into a mauling try. And if it becomes a mauling try or a one sequence of one-off goals that eventually leads to a try, everybody goes back to the halfway line happy. And it's part of, And also, not only do the, crowd, the home crowd identify with a certain way of playing the game, but it strikes fear into an opponent if that works. By the same token, if you don't strike fear in the opponent by playing to your strengths, they feel let off the hook and they can feel liberated. So I do think it ticks a number of boxes. But by the same token, you like for example, look at Old Trafford and Man United, the debate they're having, you can yeah. bring in a football term. I was listening to radio commentary on the end of their game the other day, Mark Lawrence and Radio 5 Live going through, and it's the same old refrain, and the fans are chanting, attack, attack, attack. Maybe they were spoilt under the Ferguson era. Maybe Leinster certainly were spoilt under the Michael Checker and particularly the Joe Schmidt era. But it does come at a cost if you don't play. If results go against Louis van Gaal, he'll be quicker out the door, the same way Matt O'Connor was, because he's not playing true to type. Yeah, we are discussing this partially because of what happens in football and Man United are the best example of that. But football has so much more tradition and history in this regard than Leinster or Munster or any of the Irish provinces and most clubs really in, in rugby. Um, so when you hear Leinster fans saying, oh, we've got to go back to our traditional route and and whatever that is, expansive rugby, whatever, it's hard to define that anyway. But whatever fans want, you think you've only been watching this team since 98, 99, realistically. Nobody knows how Leinster and Munster played previous to the pro- professional era. So does it come across as a little fake, a little contrived from fans demanding be loyal to your tradition when really the tradition is only quite recent? I don't know if the, if the tradition is that recent. You know, it's always been regarded as a monster strength. They beat the All Blacks playing 12 0, and I doubt the winners even saw the ball. You know what I mean? They just tackled. Um, Tony Ward kicked the ball into the skies every chance he got, and they won the only team to beat, the only Irish team, male team ever to beat the All Blacks, um, and the only team to beat them on that tour, playing very much monster rugby. So while it might be based partly on sepia tinned kind of old black and white frames, it still has some value, I think. And Leinster have traditionally provided a lot of flair to the Irish team that provide a lot of backs more so than forwards that's been the, the general view it might be strictly accurate and sure enough it might only go back to the start of the professional era but Leinster have always provided great backs they've always been lucky enough to have great backs even when they were, weren't supplying an awful lot of forwards to the Irish team they support a lot of the three quarters and you've got Brian O'Driscoll Gordon Darcy you know, the list is endless Dennis Hickey Shane Horgan some of these are the greatest Irish backs of all time and you've got to allow for whether that's still there but I believe it is still there when you've got players like Eason Asewa the Carney brothers Luke Fitzgerald Ben Teo and so forth that they do have a lot of flair and talent still and of course you've got a great running out half in Johnny Sexton so those strengths should be used and there was a sense that they weren't fulfilled their potential under Matt O'Connor in terms of the brand of rugby they played and they were quite limited as a result. Also, the more strings to your bow, 
the better are you are your chance of being competitive and throughout the winter months as well as the summer months or the early season months, the end of season months, and be competitive in all formats and all competitions. And I just think it sounds a little bit trite, maybe, but and it, like I do said, they are they were spoilt, Leinster for sure. In the same way, Munster were a little spo- spoilt, but you do need to retain your virtues and your strengths and your sense of identity. And I think this also is more relevant in a rugby context, Simon, because of the local identification in terms of the players who play for the club. For example, yesterday Arsenal played Spurs in the North London derby and as an Arsenal fan I was very worried about that because there wasn't one English player in the team. Spurs had several English players in their team and they were talking about it afterwards on television somewhere and Emmanuel Petit had told Jermaine Genius that they were always reminded of how important the North London derby was by Lee Dixon, Martin Keown, Tony Adams, Nigel Winterburn. You take that identification out of a team and they lose something. And in, you know, when Paul O'Connell came back into the monster mix, they rediscovered their mauling virtues, their one-off power plays up front, that they weren't just going this side-to-side Canterbury rugby. And I do think in the, in the provincial provinces particularly, that is very apt because there is always going to be a core of players from the region, from the province. And if they lose that, they lose everything. There's also an argument, sorry Owen, yeah. that rugby obviously isn't robust, as robust as football. So in the downtimes, when Leinster and Munster and Ulster or whoever eventually do have fallow periods, which they're kind of having now, mm-hmm. I suppose, that, that's more important than ever to have that identity because football just will always get fans, particularly in the Premier League. But rugby is going to have harder times in Ireland than it's having at the moment. And that link becomes even more important. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, Unlike Irish football, the professional elite players walk amongst our streets. They are amongst us. They live amongst us. They play for their local teams, by and large. There is some traffic, some movement, and it's accepted and it's welcomed. And player like Felix Jones embraced by Munster and others, and there's been a few instances of that. Um, Owen Redden up in Leinster, several instances of it, and it works. But there has to be that core through, through thick and thin. You're right, through thick and thin. There has to be that core, or else the fans will walk away, because they need that set. The fans are from the region and they need identification. I, I still think it's fairly relevant in football as well. It may never be like Celtic winning the European Cup with 11 players born within a five-mile radius of Parkhead or whatever the fabled story was. But like I said with that Arsenal-Spurs derby yesterday, Arsenal bring on their one English player and he gets the equaliser. An English player having scored for Spurs. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but what, what are Liverpool going to lose with Steven Gerrard gone? Arguably quite a lot because he matters so much to the team. He ma- and he matters so much to the cop and he matters so much to the sport. So I do think it's relevant to football as well, but I think it's even more relevant for those reasons that you've out- outlined to rugby. Well, that's where, I mean, Leo Cullen's head coach now, Gervin Dempsey's involved. There are a lot of guys who know what it's all about at Leinster, but it seems to me to be a pretty big ask for a rookie head coach like Leo Cullen to, if the demand on him from supporters is to win and also play a specific way. I would have thought that already it's a big ask for him to succeed given the scale of this job. So to add nuances to it it seems almost a little unfair. Yeah, well, I'm sure Matt O'Connor thinks it's a little unfair too, but look, it cost Matt O'Connor his job. I think, yes, you're right, it adds to the demands and the burden placed on Leo Cullen, who's clearly going to become a better coach in years to come. In the same way Michael Checa evolved as a coach and was a much better coach after five years with Leinster than he was with one. And look at what he's gone on to achieve since. And he would be the first to accept that Leinster was the makings of him. as Every bit as much as he was the making of Leinster, they were the making of him. He learned so much on the hoof. And Leo Cullen's going to learn on the hoof as well. But if he is true to what the Leinster supporters believe to be a certain brand of rugby, an identification with them and what, they're, what they are traditionally produced on a rugby pitch, then I think we'll also cut him more slack. 
and there won't be that as, there mightn't be that as much of an insane demand for results as there was under Matt O'Connor. Plus, he's coming in after Matt O'Connor. He's not coming in after Joe Schmidt. What do you think, Simon? Uh, the pressure on Cullen, the difference between him and Cheka is that Cheka had the advantage that he was coming in on the back of no Heineken Cup success. So that was that was still waiting, whereas Leinster have had that now, supporters have had it, although maybe it's cushioned a little bit by the fact that it's been a, a relatively unsuccessful period since. I think Leo Cullen probably got the job in interviews by agreeing to a change in style because the, the one thing was the results. I mean, Leinster did get to a semi-final of the, high, of the European Cup last year. Um, I, I missed th- out the final by a couple of inches. Yeah, and yet the fans were still the unhappiest they've been in 10, 15 years and I think probably in the interviews that Leo Cullen was having, this is deciding before he got the job, that he would agree to return it to all values. I, that's kind of a hunch, I know, but it's been so clear if you've watched any of the Rabo games. that there's, And it's because of Gervin Dempsey, as well. we spoke about what he's done with Leinster A. This is his first big job, obviously, and we didn't know whether he'd try and do that at the higher level. But it's so clearly there is an emphasis there. What's interesting is when Leo Cullen's been asked... He hasn't explicitly said, yeah, there, there is a change in style because I don't think he wants to be pinned down to saying, mm-hmm. oh, we're going for this because that can yeah. be murder for you mm-hmm. in a Yeah, then suddenly you, you try and dig one out 7-6 and people <laughs> say, what happens to all the yeah, yeah, yeah. attacking rugby? And don't forget, Leinster on the road to the promised land won a quarterfinal 6-5 in Harlequins with the defensive, when there was a, a siege on their line. Which was one of the most exciting games of the year. Absolutely. It was reminiscent of the way yeah. the Australian team held out with 13 men against Wales, uncannily like yeah. it. And you're right as well, Simon, in inextricably linked to that and I'd say it was another part of what Leo Cullen said in the interviews was promoting indigenous talent like Gary Ringrose who never got a look in under Matt O'Connor and that was, that was Matt O'Connor seemed like he wanted very much like Leicester in the premiership he wanted a ready-made seasoned team of 15 professionals nearly all of them internationals and didn't do as much to develop the younger players indigenous players as he could have done and I would imagine in keeping with the broader style of rugby, going back to their roots, as it were, would also be promotion of um, indigenous talent and giving them more of a chance than had been the case. Do the other clubs, the other big clubs in other countries, care as much about this kind of thing? Toulouse, Leicester... Well, I was going to put this to Jerry. You know French rugby really well and and you spend a lot of time over there. I noticed when I first went to Toulouse away games, they have Alaman in the hands, actual permanent signs around the stadium. And they're probably the most committed to their own style of play and that being as important as the wins... Um, Leicester are also one who they're kind of the opposite a little bit more like Munster where it's about you know aggressive forward play being dogged being the underdog um, just gritting it out and if you take Munster, Leinster uh, Leicester and Toulouse besides Toulon they're the most successful most consistent teams through the history of European rugby so maybe that idea of what the way you should play and being true to things is actually there's a link to success I don't know which comes first but Toulon are there because of money, but the other four are there because they have a sense of identity. Whereas there's loads of clubs who, who kind of come up and disappear again because they don't have that. Toulouse are probably the nearest example to Leinster in that sense. You're right. They expect a certain brand of rugby and they do not enjoy sleeved up, sleeve rolls up, crash bang wallop rugby and kicking the leather off the ball the way other teams would. Toulon under Philippe Saint-André would never run the ball from their own half. They, they, they're not in, but they're recently, they were revived club and entity that only recently returned from Pro Dutt to the top flight and are a new force in the game. Toulouse's methods have worked historically. They've won more French championships than anybody else. They've won more um, European Cups than any other French team and they lost their way in latter years and they seem to be reverting very much to type under Hugo Mola and they are expected to play a brand of rugby. It doesn't apply so much across the board in France anymore. In fact, a lot of them have sold their soul. There's a couple of teams that tried still. Bordeaux Begla, Montpellier in a good day at home. But again, we're talking about strengths and virtues at home. Every French crowd 
draw strength from a big scrum from their home team or a big maul from their home team, you know, with almost without exception. And that even goes for Toulouse as well. And it, 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 that's very like Munster. And if it, they draw huge energy from that. So that if, if, again, this works both ways. If, if they apply that, it sends fear through the opposition ranks and they, they probably feel like a beaten side. If they don't achieve that, psychologically it's very damaging to the home team and gives the away team a huge psychological lift. I remember Ulster once going to a French side away from home, I think it was Castor, and scrummaging them into the ground and it was the basis for their first away win, I think, ever in France, the European Cup. So, you know, you attack a strength as well. So each team has their certain identity. I would say in France though now, so many of them, apart from Clermont and Toulouse, I mean, it's really like watching paint dry, uh, unless Toulon are playing, you know, an outclass second string Montpellier team like at the weekend and put up 50 points, which they're well capable of doing it and throwing it around. Toulon are as well. And the St. Felix Mayal crowd go, go ballistic when they do start offloading from everywhere. And, but it's less and less of a f- traditional French virtue, as is, is seen in their pretty awful French national team, the worst team they've ever taken to a World Cup by some distance. You know, funny, Shane Horgan in the Sunday Times made a point about Toulon that while they're, they're as impressive as the hype suggests, they do sometimes play, they're not 100% ultra consistent. There are times when they can get caught. With that in mind, what sort of chance are you giving Leinster of getting through that pool? I mean, that looks like the toughest on paper pool of the Irish teams, Toulon, Bath and Wasps. It certainly does. I mean, Toulon um, are rewriting the European record books. They're the new powerhouse of European rugby. They've struggled this season domestically to begin with, but you couldn't read anything in, much into domestic form at the moment because it's so unreliable with the World Cup. They've lost Lee Halfpenny and Paul O'Connell, but then they've gained Man Nanu and they've gained Great Cooper and they've, got, they've gained so many players mm-hmm. and they're going to be as strong as ever. And the thing about them is with their squad strength and depth that they're they will be able to attack on both fronts. They will be able to maintain challenges both domestically and the European Cup and will arguably become even more dangerous once it gets to the knockout stages. You'd imagine they won't lose at home. It's going to be... The key for Leinster will be winning their home games, particularly beating Toulon in the Aviva Stadium, which is going to be memorable. Um, And somehow, they're going to have to beat Wasps at home at the weekend. I don't know. It's going to be a very, very tough pool for them because I think Bath are a cracking good side as well. And we saw that last season. It's going to be very hard for them to get out of that pool. I mean, Wasps are the weakest team in it. Uh, Leinster are at home. They absolutely have to win yep. this weekend. But even Wasps, they don't have Gopperth because he's got a ban. But uh, they have an enterprising style of play. They have a reasonably settled coach now in Die Young. This is the easiest game, and yet this it's, looks really tight. Exactly, yeah. It's the easiest game. It's, it's, they start with a must-win match. It's not a free shot for Leo Cullen. The pressure's on straight away. And, you know, in games like this, they don't have a good record against English sides, even at home sometimes. I remember them losing at home to London Irish in one of their opening games. They really struggled with the Wasps last season at home, um, but eventually actually pulled through with a very good second-half performance. Very lucky to beat Bath as well. Very, yeah. very lucky to beat Bath. Bath played much the best rugby that day. Um, and they they haven't clicked into gear yet, but they will do. And their game against Toulon is going to be fascinating. It's it's the toughest pool of the lot. If they get out of there, it's a hell of an achievement. All right, Jerry, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers. In the final round of the game, and Sent off. He's giving me a card. A card speak. Oh! 
Alright, just before we leave the rugby entirety, Simon, Joe Schmidt ruled out the England job a couple of weeks back yeah. on the late late. Michael Cech is the latest former Leinster coach to be apparently sounded out by England. Would you see that as a runner for him? Check it to go from Australia to England? When Cheka first came to Leinster, he w- we were told he was a wealthy man outside of rugby. He's got this huge clothing brand, imports a lot of stuff, I think, in Australia. So he doesn't actually need to coach to make a career, which makes him a bit of a rarity, actually, in world rugby terms. Um, so maybe money isn't as much of a motivation for him as it will be for other coaches. And the other thing is, we know he likes coming into organizations that have problems, but when you throw in the Sam Burgess story when you see some reports about the uh, some some guys inside the English management team and shares being sold and money being lost and uh, it just seems like the whole thing is such a shambles it might be too much yeah, uh, even for Cheka to take break, on yeah. just say listen I'll have four years of my career now where I'm focused on this one project and I've already got the players behind me on it I, w- I would have thought that makes a lot more sense yeah plus he's ultimately an Australian living in yeah. Australia uh, last quick word Murph the, there was a lot of GA football action over the weekend yeah. There's a little bit of a controversy around the Kerry Championship, the Munster Football Championship. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, uh, Porrick Duffy uh, did a reasonably good job last week of collating seven different reports into burnout and player fixtures and all the rest of it, into, into something even uh, approaching readable last week. And uh, pretty opposite, actually, that the, that, uh, the latest uh, row developing is over uh, club fixtures because... South Kerry played uh, Legion, Clarny Legion, in the Kerry uh, County Final yesterday. Uh, the winner of that was due to play Nemo Rangers in the Munster uh, Championship next Sunday, Munster Club Championship next Sunday. Game ends in a draw. No extra time played, of course, because why the hell would you want to do that? Uh, so the original plan was that the, cl- the Kerry County Final was going to be replayed next Saturday and that they would then the winners of that would then play Nemo Rangers on a Sunday. Mm. This, by the way, in a tournament that takes three months to play two games between <laughs> between December and St. Paddy's Day. But uh, Stradbally and Warford had already done that, won a county final on a Saturday, played Nemo last week. So uh, so they had a, they obviously had a, had a, have a bit of a problem here. So what they and we should throw into into this as well the fact that Dingle would have been Kerry's nomination to play in the Munster Club Championship because they won the club championship in Kerry, not the county championship, which is obviously a completely different thing. I don't need to explain the difference between them. You, might need, you might need to explain it, but my head's already <laughs> melted with all the IWF stuff. So if if South Kerry had won, they're a divisional team, so Dingle would have gone would have gone through as uh, as Kerry's representatives in the club championship. So uh, the idea here was play the county championship on on Saturday. If South Kerry won, then Dingle would play Nemo on the Sunday. And if Legion won, then Legion would play on the Sunday against Nemo Rangers. 
Uh, as it turns out, uh, they've decided to just nominate Legion. So Legion are going to play uh, Nemo Rangers this Sunday, and the county final is being played uh, the week after the weekend of the 22nd. Right. So Legion could be in a Munster club final and not be and not have won the Kerry cl- club or county championship. Okay. That it's, is ludicrous. It, well, it's it, you just wouldn't believe how many how how ludicrous it is. I actually left out another little wrinkle here, in that uh, South Kerry have lo- have a load of players from Carrisivine who are in the intermediate Munster Club Championship, and they're due to be playing next week as well. <laughs> so it's it's just you wouldn't believe how ridiculous this is. But uh, the one thing that I, to be honest, there was a point that I wanted to make about the the club fixtures yep. uh, document that Porry Tuffy released last last week, and that was that in buying weeks, uh, a couple of weeks, and his idea was that you would uh, get rid of the minor championship, make it an under seventeen, get rid of the football championship, football under twenty one championship completely, uh, and then move the All Ireland finals two weeks further back in the year, so they'd be the third week of August and the first week of September. Uh, it all makes a load of sense, to be honest. There's a, 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 a lot of sense to, be, to, uh, to everything that he said in that. But he's, he's trying to make weekends here and there uh, kind of throughout the summer for club players. When actually what he should do is say, right, every club championship starts in July, except for the four teams that will be left, the two semi-finalists, uh, or the four semi-finalists in football and hurling. And that way, instead of players in clubs... Training in Jan- starting training in January, like December for a load of clubs. Uh, training in January, playing one championship game in May, and then it being put completely on hold. The idea should be that the club championships start the second week of July in every in every county, and you just get you get them played that way. So that instead of players having to be at peak physical condition for a game in May, and then trying to maintain that physical level. Possibly for four months without a game, which happens in in uh, quite a few counties, that you say right, let's just you can play all the league games, finish your league games, have loads of games for clubs uh, in uh, April, May, June, but let guys actually have an off season. Let guys uh, start training in at the start of March or at the end of February. They have league games before it, and then when the championship comes around, you you play championship games every second week, and there's an actual there's a rhyme or reason to the season calendar in a way that just isn't there even remotely now and well it probably will never be anyway but that would that would be a key thing for me if you're playing club championships when it starts it's on for as until it's over instead of it being on for two weeks in may and then off again until september which that is outrageous. and what about the all-ireland championship should that be restructured or is that <laughs> uh we're probably going to put a hold but all that, we could be here quite a while. Yeah, I know you haven't got limitless hours in your day. If you do want to read the Water Report, it's on their website. It's 320 pages long, and there's a, there are lots of reports about the report that you can obviously read or just spend your next hour or so listening to our football podcast. You can probably tweet the Water Report as well, although oh. only uh, you know, yeah. only check it after you've finished listening to the podcast. Yeah, the football podcast. Yeah. Just trying to forward promote that. Uh, thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank thanks, you, Ken. Simon. And thank you, Simon. Thanks, thanks Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, 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 many for listening. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.